episodes of NewsWeb Radio or its management. You're on against the grain, Raza Siddiqui, Tio, Mr. Ceasefire Hardiman. We've got what's going to be promising to be a very controversial show today because we've got someone who does not shy away from controversy. We have uh, Chicago Police Union President John Katzana. We have John Katzana today to take your questions and, and field our questions because I know, Tio, you and I have quite a few. I'm, I'm going to ask you this, John. Let's start off. Let's get the hardball questions out of the way. You were first elected, being the first to be elected while stripped of police powers. I'm sure that has come up in a lot of conversations. Quite a quite an honor. How do you uh, how do you answer that when people ask that question? Let's start with the hard one and keep the hard questions coming. Well, first of all, you know we did practice this beforehand. It's Cat and Zara. That's right. Cat and Zara. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm just, That's anyway. what I wanted to make sure. Right. <laughs> that being said. You know, my police powers are almost irrelevant to the duties that I serve on a daily basis at this point. It really makes no difference whatsoever. Um, so it was no big deal to me. It's not the first time I've been in that rodeo. And the department has absolutely, through COPA, made a concerted effort to strip officers as knee-jerk reaction more than ever before. So it's not unique. It's almost a pandemic within COPA and their policies at this point. You took on this role during a very trying time. You you came on, COVID hit, all sorts of uh, protests, uh, rioting have hit. Um, is this what you signed up for? And how have you been able to kind of roll with the punches that you've been delivered? You know, I don't think anybody foreseen what was going to really go on in 2020. But I could tell you, I knew the, the Lodge needed to go in a new direction uh, and, and kind of grow and expand and diversify a little bit. But the running joke was, it took three weeks to finally get my meeting with the mayor on May 29th, that Friday morning. Mm. And that was even like pulling teeth that morning. She tried to get out of it. But the joke was that that was the highlight of her weekend because the riots that she said were not coming to Chicago came to Chicago in spades um, and wow. in full force. Uh, you know, this is nothing like any FOP president or administration has had to deal with before. But I'm okay with that. I kind of thrive in chaos. I'd kind of be bored if there was nothing to do but the routine stuff. Um, so, again, my plates, I could juggle some more. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you something. I appreciate you coming on the show first and foremost. And uh, I'm the same type of person. In other words, I'm more outspoken. I'm not really controversial. But what happens is that I'm the kind of guy that speaks truth to power at different times. I'm one of the guys that was on the front line dealing with police brutality, excessive force. And I'm not anti-police. I'm just against, you know, excessive force. That That's my whole thing. I go back with a lot of, you know, outstanding, upstanding police as well. So I just want to say this to you. Uh, what is the main role of the FOP. I know it's the police union. I got that. And I know the union protect the, the, the union, you know, workers per se. But what is your main role uh, in, in your capacity, what you serve now? Well, I'll give you a quick explanation. You know, when I first took office, I was doing an interview out in front of the lodge. And after I had finished with Channel 2, a, a, a dark SUV pulled up, the window went down, and lo and behold, it's Dr. Willie Wilson. Okay. Now, this is prior to him announcing his run for Senate. We had a conversation. We had an agreement that he was going to come in we're going to have a sit down and we're going to talk, which is exactly what we did a couple of days later. Uh, from there, it kind of grew into a community outreach, so to speak, with members of the administration currently and Dr. Wilson's outreach within the community. So we brought ministers into the lodge. The first time we were there, we had about 16 or 17. The next time it was like 19 or 20. The third time we were there, we had 72 ministers, all denominations in our lodge on site, wanted to hear what the FOP was about. And our dynamic was simple. We were going to explain who we were as men and women, what we do as a lodge and a police department and our direction going forward. And what I told them was this, when you talk about what does the FOP do? Right. The FOP obviously negotiates benefits, working conditions, um, and uh, protects uh, discipline procedures for every member. Now, when it comes to discipline, this is such a hot button topic and everybody wants to strip away union protections for police in this state, which is mind boggling to me. But the average, pol the average police officer has two, two layers of protection. You have a complaint that's investigated by COPA or IAD. That's number one. That can be sustained or unfounded, one or the other. If it's sustained, great. <laughs> Not great, but now you move on to the next level. You file a grievance, you go to an arbitrator. An arbitrator's decision is final. Whatever the arbitrator decides, whether to overturn the original decision or to sustain it, you are stuck with that. Now, let's flip side that to the justice system. You are a felon. 
or an accused felon. You get stopped with a gun, dope, and we have to call the state's attorney for felony approval. That's one no you could get. Okay. You get, obviously, a yes on the felony charges. Now you go to a probable cause hearing. The judge can throw it out at the probable cause hearing. That's two. Now you get a court date. Judge, jury can say not guilty. That's three. You go to an appeal from there. That's at least four. If you don't go to the state Supreme Court, that would be five. Five layers of protection for the average offender in this justice system, as opposed to two for the FOP. So when people say that we're protecting bad apples, no. Okay. We're, we're just doing what we're supposed to do. Because, okay, what I'm looking at also, last year in Chicago, 2020, we had a, a blockbuster year in terms of an increase in homicides, increasing sh- increase in shootings, 53% increase in both categories. Carjackings, they were like a uh, trip. They increased almost 200% because they were close to 1,400 carjackings in 2020. So do you believe that since all the rioting and protests against the police, do you believe, and uh, you know, I don't want to put you on the spot all the way, but you know, you, you got tough skin. I ain't worried about it. So the reality is, do you believe that some of the police have kind of took, take a step backwards and they're not they are not willing to go the extra mile because of all the scrutiny and they're up under a real real tight microscope right now what do you think about that when it comes to uh, to the morale to the morale of our officers well i mean it's a couple different topics to touch on that but morale is absolutely in the tank okay uh, we are attacked from every level from city hall to county to state um, it's and even nationwide for that matter. The profession has been under attack for a long time. It's almost a tsunami wave that's gathered steam. But have policemen become less proactive? Certainly. And to some degree, how can anybody be blamed for that? You just had a law passed in Springfield that's still waiting for the governor's signature, which if he did the right thing, he should veto. But 3653, you have provisions in there that actually call for punitive measures that, I mean, it's almost revenge tactics that they want to throw coppers in jail for turning off the body cam, for false statements. Um, And these are intentional. Well, who defines what intentional is? You can't even look at body cam. You know, one of the other conversations I had with the mayor day one was about liability and how officers' statements don't match up with the body cams quite often. And that opens them up to lawsuits. And that's all about this lawsuits and Lovey and Lovey. But now they just passed a law that says you cannot look at body cam prior to doing a police report. That's only going to increase liability on the city's part of it. Okay. It, It makes no sense. But, you know... The carjackings and the murders, I think that was more of criminals taking advantage of an overwhelmed system. I mean, the alderman just voted to cut 640 more police jobs out of the, out of the budget. I mean, how many police officers do we have in Chicago? About 13,000? In total, just under. Okay, I just mean, that, under that's 13, all ranks, 000. yes. And then I heard that uh, a lot of police are retiring because of all this here, placing people under the microscope, am I right? Uh, it's going to get worse, too. I can okay. tell you that. If the governor signs that bill as is, we have, and I've, I had the pension board run these numbers for me. We have a little over 2,600 officers that can leave tomorrow morning and start collecting a paycheck immediately. 2,600. Wow. We already have 1,200 more collecting checks than are paying into the system right now. Okay. At a tune of about $70 million a month, the pension fund pays out for total annuitants. And you're looking at, you could add anywhere from seven to $15 million a month on top of that. And that's not only money going out. That's 2000 plus that we're not paying in to the pension fund. We're, and, and we're talking about a pension fund that's, you know, almost on life support at this point. So John, John I'm going to take a yeah, second right, just really quick and, yeah. and ask you this with the body cam issue. Do you ever find that the body cam is actually helpful to your police officers? I know we always hear the other side of it that um, like you were saying, there's restrictions on what can be viewed. Um, what is the take that if policy is written that uh, does this body cam ever show that the police officers acted? It, it can show people that th- this person may have acted in preservation of life, that there was a, a fear. What is the overall picture if if uh, you look at body cams and you look at a policy written in a well, certain way. I mean, well, specific to 3653, that is more about the rest of the state than Chicago. Chicago has been doing body cams. You know, most of the bigger departments have been doing them on some level. Uh, but again, the retentions, you know, part of the law that was passed when body cams came about was that the retention was supposed to be 90 days unless a, a video was flagged. The city has not deleted a single body cam video since it's been implemented in the city of Chicago. They are in violation of state law with the excuse that they're saving them for training purposes, which is a bunch of BS. We're talking millions and millions of video. And not only that, it costs money to store those videos. Mm -hmm. They are paying for stuff that are basically breaking the law over. But I don't particularly have a problem with body cams. I thought they were a good thing. My problem with it is the fact that if someone wants to say that you intentionally turned off a body cam or you didn't turn it on because of a certain reason, you not only would be 
subject to firing, then decertification where you can never be the police again. You're also subjected to a class three felony. I mean, it's it's ludicrous. Then plus, I have to play the devil's advocate when it comes to reducing gun violence and the carjackings. See, this is the only issue I might have with the police. See, people in Chicago need need to tell the truth. It's hard to stop a killing, number one. And I would love to train police officers in the field of conflict resolution, how to get on the front end and stop the violence. That's what violence interrupters do. So what I'm saying right here is this. Police get involved once the crime has already been committed. In other words, you know, once somebody's shot and killed, police get called. So how is it that, why is it that the police cannot maybe try to stop the shootings on the front end? Why do you think that is? Is it a matter of training or is it just like, a, and I'm not saying that the police are not willing to go the extra mile because it's hard to intercept whispers on the streets to get on the front end because I'm getting tired of seeing the high, the high homicide rate in Chicago. So you got a little bit under 12, a little bit under 13,000 police officers. How's it? Why is it that they cannot get on the front end and stop the killings? Real talk. I'm just cutting through the chase now because I know how to do it. Don't Man, get me wrong. You just pushed me really. the deep end of the pool. That's here. right. That's I, right. I, I mean, just, you know, your the, best to, explanation to me, and I yeah. know this is something that, a lot of people don't yeah. like hearing, but yeah. the front end is right. home. It's your home life. It's your parents. Yeah. That's the front line. That's where personal accountability has to begin. There have been plenty of shootings where police have been on the same block right. and they just don't care. That's what I'm talking what, about. What are you going to do to stop that? I mean, literally, the superintendent, to his credit, has not called names, but he has laid blame at the door of Kim Fox's office, whether people want to admit it or not, is the reality is there. He said these felons need to stay in jail longer than they are right now. That falls on two people's doorsteps, Kim Fox and Tim Evans, Judge Tim Evans. I mean, that's just the reality of this all. And until things change and we, we knock off this revolving door or this, you know, again, restorative justice is such a Nice, catchy term. Yeah. But what does it really mean? I mean, you can't just keep looking the other way and thinking, oh, now you want to create a new court where, you know, they're not mentally developed between 18 and 26. So now you're going to have lesser punishments for people up to 26 now. I mean, come on, where does this stop? Where does the victims come into any of this equation whatsoever? There's no considerations for them in any way, shape or form. So what we'll do, we got a few callers way on the line. So let's bring on uh, the first caller up there. I think it's Diane or Dave from San Francisco. Then we get to everybody else. Uh, Dave? Oh, yeah. Uh, afternoon. Uh, you know, as a taxpayer, you know, you think about the police as supposed to hear. be uh, gathering tr true and actual yeah. evidence. And when you start thinking about restorative justice, you're trying to make sure that people can return to society, uh, you know, in an actual helpful way. And I don't want, as a taxpayer, to have jails used, uh, specifically hiring torturers. Now, restorative justice means that they're more like uh, someone who's looking for redemption rather than revenge. And when you have a policy of, of looking for revenge, then part of their hiring practice means that you have to look for torturers. So I wonder if you've got some comments on that. My other bigger question is what happened at Homan Square? And uh, are we ever, as taxpayers, are we ever going to learn uh, what happened at Homan Square and whether it'll ever stop? Yeah. Well, I, Dave, I, I don't even know where to begin with that uh, and the conspiracy theories. Well, then maybe you should quit. Well, okay. Thank you. Thank you for your call. But home, Holman Square is not some black site opera, you know, a torture facility. It's ridiculous. But as far as the restorative justice you talked about, I, I can tell you that's more on the, the IDA, uh, Illinois Department of Corrections level on what they do as far as rehabilitation. That's not a, an average officer's job on the street. Okay, that's good enough. So let's take Greg. We got another call, Brother Greg, holding for us. Greg? Hello, hello. Hey, how you doing today? Doing pretty good, good sir. I got, I got a question for him. What, what do you think about the consent decree? Okay, that's a fair question. The dissent, consent decree, whatever they called it. What's your thoughts about that, uh, John? Well, from the beginning of the consent decree, I was not in office when that obviously began, uh, but I did have my own opinions on it, so much so that you know, the lodge under President Dean Angelo at the time had a forum with the Department of Justice and the Department of Justice came in and wanted to listen and pick coppers brains to see what they thought was the problems within the police department. Well, I met one of the uh, 
attorneys from the Department of Justice at that meeting. And we had scheduled a follow-up the following week. And I could tell you, I had a four and a half hour lunch with the Department of Justice on what I saw were problems within the Chicago Police Department. They had three different members of the Department of Justice come in at any given time during those four plus hours talking about what I was uh, putting out there. Uh, so it's not like I, I don't know that there's room for improvement. There's always room for everybody to improve, including the police and our members. But training has always been a major issue with the police department. And I can tell you, for those that don't know, the majority of training, once you get out of the academy, is looking at a computer screen, watching a video, and clicking completed. That's your training. It's absolutely ridiculous. But one of the major issues is manpower and money. You can't have a large section of the department going for training on a regular basis without the money to pay for it, and then without the manpower to supplement Obviously, other officers not being on duty. It, it goes counterintuitive to the fact you just cut 640 jobs out of the budget. Okay. All right, Atiyah, why don't we um, head to a commercial? We want to put the number out there again because we want to have this dialogue. Um, we are on with John Katanzara. 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 Right. Um, Fraternal Order of Police of Chicago, oh, Union President. Yeah. So um, hold, no, hold we would on, like to just, invite yeah. callers to call hold in on. at 773-763-9278. Again, 773-763-9278. We're going to talk about some of the complex relationships you have with other unions as well as um, what's going on with the city. Obviously, there's a continuing development in the news cycle with that. And we'll get to that right after this commercial break. Yeah, let's take a quick commercial break. So far, so good. The minority groups in America are severely affected by COVID-19 due to health care and economic inequities. Chicago, now it's your time to make a difference in your community and join the fight against this global pandemic. Loretto Hospital, in partnership with Affinity Health, are seeking healthy volunteers to find a potential COVID-19 vaccine. Interested participants can call 877-L-TRIALS or visit chicagocovidvaccine.com to learn more. Megan Financial is an independent retirement and financial services firm dedicated to the working men and women of organized labor. Megan provides straightforward, custom-fit financial advice and specializes in defined benefit and defined contribution pension plans, as well as participant and retiree health and welfare benefits. Megan Financial has the knowledge and experience to navigate the union member through all phases of life. Call 708-444-1090. Securities and advisory services offered through Satera Advisors, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC, a broker-dealer and registered investment advisor. Satera is under separate ownership from any other named entity. Office location at 5321 South 94th Avenue, Orland Park, Illinois, 60462. 33 Realty is a fully integrated real estate services firm specializing in investment brokerage, property management, leasing, distressed real estate services, and construction services via its sister company, Cube Construction, for a variety of asset classes across the multifamily and commercial real estate sectors. 33 Realty provides full service solutions, complex real estate assignments with industry leading staff invested in the process. For more information, please visit 33realty.com. 33 Realty, your foundation for real estate success. You're on Against the Grain, Raza Siddiqui, Teal, Mr. Ceasefire Hardiman. We, we've got John with us from the uh, Fraternal Order of Police Chicago. Chicken. You're in the middle of yeah, that's it. You're in the middle of a maelstrom in, in the middle of the city. I mean, things continuously come after you. There's calls for uh, to, you to be fired as a police officer. I know this has been a continuing trend, but you have made it clear that you could still be and still will be president of the Fraternal Order of Police, even with this going forward. Is it a move to discredit you? Is there legitimacy? Some of these social media things that kind of have put you under the microscope. Where does all that stand? I mean, you have an amendment, right? But you also have a uh, policy. Well, let, let's look at the reality here. The, the the two recent things that came out at the police board were one social media post from 2016 and 17. COPA had completed that investigation already. They sat on that determination for the better part of 2020. They could have rendered that recommendation way long ago it could have been sent to charlie beck when he was the interim superintendent and it could have went from there they could have basically sent me to the police board prior to me becoming the super the police, uh, president of the union they didn't do that the same thing with now the police report against eddie johnson and commander ponicor who ironically is still 
in power as a commander in his police department after having a report deleted from the system. But again, mm. you want to talk about accountability here. But both of those, again, that was signed under Charlie Beck. They didn't serve me with that either until after I'd become president of the union. This wouldn't even be an issue. But there are labor laws that say they cannot discipline me while I am on a leave of duty with the department to work for the FOP as its lead negotiator and president. So this is all smoke and mirrors. And if you want to ask why, well, look it, you got the teacher screaming in one ear and the, the mayor capitulating to them every single inch they get. Um, she backs up another step and they just keep pushing her backwards. You can go back to the search warrant that everybody was highlighting and the embarrassment of what the mayor knew and when she knew it and how she lied about that. But again, it's all look over there. Don't look over here and the mismanagement, the carjacking numbers. Tio touched on it already. They were 100% plus from 2019 to 2020. And even as high as that number is, we are now ahead of even 2020's pace. Same with murders. Murders were up 55% in 2020. Right. We're 30% over last year's 55% increase. Where does the accountability come at some point that this is on the mayor? Without a doubt, I definitely concur with you. So with that being said, I think Greg had one more question. Then we'll take the other callers. Uh, so, Brother Greg, what's, what's your second question there? I might need to. Okay, my second question is, that's cool. My second question is, how, he was in office around this time. How do we feel about the LeBron McDonald situation? And how do, he, how do we feel about people saying he doesn't like black people? You know, he's under scope for that. You know, if you don't like black people, I don't think you need to be the president of anything for us. Okay, we'll let him answer that question, Brother Greg. Thanks for that question, too. Uh, thanks, Greg. So let me touch on the last one first. This whole John's racist, you know, when you're playing cards with somebody who holds nothing but the race card in their hand, it makes it almost impossible to get anything done. There is no proof, evidence, references that I am racial in any way, shape, or form, biased, racist, or otherwise. As a matter of fact, I can give you example, example after another, how untrue that really is. But the simple fact is I have a niece and two nephews who are half black. My sister was married to a black man for over 20 years. Mm. So again, this is all nonsense. It's designed to shut me down because here I am, the big, bad boogeyman, the white male, and they figure if they throw the race card, I'm going to curl up in a corner. Keep trying. I'm not going anywhere. I know who I am. I know what I stand for. And I have tried to bring diversity to the FOP Lodge 7 more than any president prior to me. It was a promise from day one when we started campaigning. And it's something we're striving for every day. That's just the truth. Tell us about some of the work that you've done to increase diversity within the lodge. So one of the things we said from day one when we were campaigning was the lodge historically has been white male. 50 to 40 to 60 years old, pretty much. That's who's ran the lodge. The bylaws are very simple. They've been that way forever. In order to qualify for elections, you have to go to half of the meetings. We have a small lodge considering the size of the you know membership we have. But in this last election, if we have 11,000, just usually round number, 11,000 officers in Lodge 7, less than 120 qualified for this election. And of that 120, Less than 10 were African-American. I think eight of them were female. Wow. Uh, I, I can't make this up out of the clear blue sky and make change happen. But what I said from even when we were campaigning and even when I first announced I was going to run in January of 19, um, I said, one of the things we need to do is have a woman's committee. Now, a woman's committee doesn't necessarily dictate policy, but it opens up the door for opinions and voices to be heard, faces to be seen, and try and encourage other females on this department to get involved in union politics, whether it's on a committee level or whether it's obviously to run for office. Um, it, it's baby steps, but we're going to get there. We also started a tier two. You know, like I said, this was mostly older males that were running the lodge forever. Uh, so we started a tier two committee. Tier two is basically anybody with, right at this point, nine years, under 10 years on the job. Uh, they're on a tier two pension system to get the younger voices involved in this lodge. That opened up two more committees, not only for younger officers or for females, but for minorities to join too. One of the things we said was mm -hmm. we wanted involvement unlike anything before. And I could tell you, the first general meeting that I was president of in May, I seen more new faces younger faces and diverse faces than in the previous 
five years combined, guaranteed, in that one meeting. It was packed. It was standing room only. The first three were pretty much packed in standing room only. COVID kind of made everything a little goofy. But even when we went back to have our meeting, we canceled a few. And then we just had one last month. And again, it was packed. So there is some involvement, unlike before. There is some excitement. And one of the other things we did was the way we pick committees is the president gets the majority. The first vice president gets the minority picks. Every committee we did. We, we knew we'd both been around it not long enough to know who was on these committees on a regular basis every three years, but we made a conscious effort to pick new faces. I guarantee you of all of those committees, more than 50% of every single one of them is new faces. John, I'm going to ask you this. Um, I, I know we were talking about this offline a little bit. There have been some officers who have said that they don't longer want to belong to the Fraternal Order of Police. Can you tell me about, about some of the issues that uh, kind of led to that and, and what the stance of the Fraternal Order of Police is with that? If you want to give a little backstory about that as well. Well, I mean, there's only one that has left the lodge since I've been president. Okay. Uh, I. Uh, again, I, I don't know anybody that I've had this conversation with that doesn't think there's ulterior motives to this decision. We're talking about somebody who did not even have one year on the job. You literally have your whole career, if this is what you say you want to do long term, ahead of you. I'm we're talking two plus decades, three plus decades before you can retire. And to think that you are going to do that without Lodge 7 protections for discipline in an environment where they are coming after you more and more and more. So to say that John was the problem and that was the decision of why that officer decided to opt out of the union, everybody's right. Anybody could do it anytime they want. But it's kind of nonsense. I took office May 9th. That officer left the union less than 60 days later. So Okay. So let's do this. Let's take caller number two. I think somebody named, uh, yeah, yeah, caller number two. You're on the air. Uh, that caller number two would Marcia? be Marsha. Marsha, you're on the air with Tio Hardiman, Raza Siddiqui, and John. Can you hear? Does she say anything? She has not. So we'll go to Jim and Elgin. Elgin, uh, Jim, you are on the call. How you guys doing, John? Uh, a lot of us out there support you 100. percent A lot of the problems that we have is because you've got these politicians. Uh, recently, for example, there was this, a 12 year old girl that got killed by a guy who was. Uh, Four or five times the limit, and he was let out of bail. One gun charge for two fifty, a second charge for five hundred bucks, and even the mayor of Oak Lawn had to come out and criticize Fox because these guys are being let out of jail. And a lot of these things that are occurring is because of the politicians and judges that are letting these people go by. And we can do a lot to try to urge uh, Governor Pritzker to not sign this this bill because that's going to have more cash bail people. There are no cash bail people bail people let out and you're going to see the same thing occur in bigger numbers. Uh, thanks, Jim. Yeah, I mean, I agree. 36.53 does get rid of cash bail. And some things that people don't understand, I think, or don't really pay attention. That bill started out as a 611-page bill, and it was filed two days before the lame duck session. I mean, do we have some idea of what was going to be in there? Sure. But when you're, when you're passing language within five days, you have to read every word of the 611 pages because that's what's going to be law not what you thought might be in there it's what they're actually filing it morphed into an extra 40 some pages and then it obviously piggybacked with uh attorney general raul's decertification plan which was another 150 some pages and it it's just a nightmare but i just want people to understand some of the simplest things going forward if 3653 is signed by the governor as is you can no longer make arrests for class B misdemeanors. What does that mean? That means if some knucklehead decides they want to come sit on your porch and steal your Amazon package, because again, uh, package theft is a class B misdemeanor. So they decide they want to steal your package, rip it open and make themselves at home on your porch. And you come out and say, give me the damn package. And they say, no, I'm good. I'm going to call the police. Go ahead and call the police. The police are going to show up. And guess what? The police are going to ask them to leave, put the package down. They're going to say, no, Okay, got an ID. Sure, here's an ID. The police are going to write him a ticket, ask him one more time to leave. He's going to say no. And you know what the police are going to do? They're going to get in the squad car and they're going to drive away because they cannot make a physical arrest. That person can camp out on your porch all day and the police can keep coming back and write them 40 tickets in a day. And it doesn't mean a damn thing. That's one of the things. Um, It's ludicrous 
what they decided to do with that law. Now, that's pretty deep because I'm definitely a proponent of a progressive change, you know, to a degree. But I do understand you cannot become so laxed on laws because a lot of people take advantage of the system all the time. So I'm hoping that some of the politicians are listening today because we have to really uh, work together. I think all the minds, all the brilliant minds need to uh, convene some type of think tank before they just go out there and just do what's popular. Because what's popular may not work for the masses of the people. Because right now, just yesterday, I took around 50 people with me and several other people, not just me. We went out and we patrolled over 20 gas stations on the south side of Chicago because we're not the police, but we want to kind of deter anybody from thinking about carjacking women out there. So right now, people need to really understand you cannot be so lax because people are going to continue to just... uh, uh, step on you and do whatever they think they feel like doing because they know they're going to get a slap on the wrist. People know this. So there's nobody taking it real serious. So I just want to put that out there. Well, you know, I talked about stealing packages off of porches. Realistically, that means mail trucks. I mean, that that's what can be more federal, but UPS trucks. You can basically hmm. take any package you want out of a UPS truck, and if the police catch you, they can't do anything to you. But you talked about collaboration and putting forth this word. You know, I, I watched... A representative slaughter become very emotional when they reached that 60 volt threshold on the floor of the house or okay. actually the center. And I get, I could really relate to that emotion of fighting for something so hard and achieving your goal. Regrettably, there was some disingenuous comments attached to that. I don't, I don't question his drive or his motivation. I just really question the process because representative slaughter and Senator Sims both lied. And under that, you know, simple fact of intentionally lying or misleading, they would be subjected if they were to police to a class three felony in their own law. But law enforcement, when they say law enforcement had involvement in this, this is the simple God's honest truth. The FOP Lodge 7 represents about one third of all officers in the state of Illinois. The FOP on a state level represents over two thirds of all officers in this state. We were part of a law enforcement coalition that consisted of the state lodge, the joint labor council, the, uh, the state police lodge, and obviously CPD lodge, along with the sheriffs and chiefs association FOP on every single level. All four of those entities were left out of all these negotiations. The sheriffs and chiefs got to put some input in because they were part of our coalition and they were allowed to talk to the attorney general's people or even Senator Sims on some level or Representative Slaughter. But the FOP was intentionally excluded from every single conversation mm-hmm. or public forum by both of them. That's, that's crazy. That's what I'm talking about. Collaboration is important. Well, and and I, I just don't understand. How do they justify that? What I don't understand is in Illinois, which is a very labor progressive uh, state, labor progressive. How is it that... Um, they exclude and even call for police not to have those union protections where they fight for collect- collective bargaining agreements for every other worker and, and, and demand that they get protections, that they have a collective bargaining agreement which serves their need. How is law enforcement who's out there in one of the, arguably the most dangerous jobs excluded from these protections, even by fellow labor uh, <laughs> friendly advocates? It's head scratching to say the least. You know, the, the, there was a clause originally in there that eliminated, quite like Wisconsin did years ago, the protections for discipline and dismissal, um, which was the original goal of even the attorney general's decertification bill was licensing. And our complaint to that was you're creating a license procedure now that is not in our current collective bargaining agreement. We wouldn't have any protections under a licensing scheme. So that was a no-go from the get-go. The coalition that we put together, we worked on it all summer. I mean, from day one I was there, they had been assembled prior to this, but it really went into earnest last summer, fall, and winter. And one of the things we did was made a conscious decision that we were going to try and work with the attorney general and try and expand decertification and what it takes to get rid of bad apples, as they say. Um, So we did that. Our language, we, we, so this is a little inside baseball with the lame duck session. We probably had three or four back and forths with attorney general's number two, Ashley. I'm sorry. I don't know her last name, but she was kind of the point man for the attorney general. And we brought our concerns about what that bill was, which was originally uh, 841. And the goal was we were going to be so involved in 841 that we were going to give it its blessing. But 163 had to be dead on arrival. That was the criminal justice reform part of this. Well, to their credit, they did make a lot of the changes that we sought 
through the attorney general's bill. It was never supposed to be an omnibus bill. So I don't know how this all got, the water got muddied so quickly overnight, but I do know race did play a factor. There is no way of getting away from that. The black caucus pressured white democratic politicians to give a yes vote, or they would never get a black caucus vote again for any of their legislation. That was a resounding theme across the board from every politician I talked to and our lobbyist, you name it. So this was never, I shouldn't say it was never, it was, it wasn't just about change. It was about winning at all costs, no matter what. And we cannot keep having this race-based discussion on every single thing we do. There has to be a simple dynamic of right and wrong. And everybody has to agree on. Right, so let's bring caller number four on. They've been holding on for a while. That's fine. Number four, you're on, you're on the Jim, air. you are uh, calling from Chicago. You're on the phone with Tio Hardiman and Raza Siddiqui, as well as John. Yeah, hi, gentlemen. I just, I just want to say I'm an old hippie from the 60s. I've been all over the country and the world. The most reasonable policemen in the world are definitely Chicago policemen. They're more measured. I hope that tradition always continues. Uh, I know that there are a lot of rough things going on now, but they've always been the best police in the world that I've ever seen. Anyway, you guys have a good afternoon. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Jim. So, Thanks for your comment, so with Jim. that being said, let's try to revisit caller number two because I think that's Dr. Latrice instead of Marsha. I saw Dr. Is that uh, Dr. Latrice? Yes, I'm here. Okay, good. Yeah, we, uh, I had a, another name up there. I thought you were somebody else. But uh, what's your question for John, uh, Dr. Latrice? Um, hi, John. Uh, my name is Dr. LaShawn Latrice. I'm from Black Lives Matter, Women of Faith. Uh, we are one of the organizations that's actually calling for your resignation or for you to be fired. Um, we are very observative of a lot of your activity on Facebook uh, as it relates to uh, the political racism that's being perpetuated here in this country. And so we want to know what is your role or how do you feel you should be held accountable in a leadership capacity? In specific to what? Specific to the comments that you've been making on social media as a leader and someone that's over the paternal order of order, please. Well, I make a lot of comments. What are exactly are you speaking about? The police board issues? No, no, nothing could police board issues. The issues that you have concerning the politics. The systemic racism that's being perpetuated that just uh, ended the term of Donald Trump, but also um, your own personal views that you attach being a police or being in the capacity that you serve. That's the problem that we have. Uh, again, I, I need you to give me a specific example. I don't exactly get. I watched, I watched one of your videos. I watched one of your videos where you were referring to. Uh, black people, and I know you just mentioned that you have a black niece and nephew, but your comments about criminals and black criminals specifically were uh, that of someone that is not in a capacity to be uh, in a mediating capacity. Uh, you said some very negative things, and I do understand that, um, well, you, you, you said the word animals. Uh, you
tell you, Mr. Blakemore has some amazing moments of truth that I people should pay a look times. But Alderman in this term after term after term with empty promises that don't do anything to change the dynamic of some of these communities. But they're blowing smoke up people's behinds and they keep buying what they're selling. I don't get it. Um, I just believe in personal accountability. So I know people like to twist it, that that's a race thing. But to me, it's just factual numbers and statistics of where the crime is occurring and who the offenders are in the city. And we got to hit another commercial break. Okay, we'll be we back to, to answer call. some more Let's of these stop. questions after this. Tio Hardiman, Raza Siddiqui, on with John. We'll be back right after this. Are you interested in being one of the first participants in a COVID-19 vaccine clinical trial in Chicago? Affinity Health is currently seeking healthy volunteers who may be eligible for a COVID-19 investigational vaccine study. This will take place at the Loretto Hospital in Chicago, Illinois. We are looking for people who work as teachers, factory workers, retail workers, or anyone exposed to many people during their workday. Visit ChicagoCovidVaccine.com or call 877-L-TRIALS to learn more. That's 877-587-4257. Founded by award-winning acoustical architect Timothy Pickett in 1999, Encompass AV is one of the most respected audiovisual and acoustical design firms in Chicago. Encompass AV and its staff of 20 highly trained field engineers provide custom-designed AV, low-voltage, network, and security systems. Since inception, Encompass AV has worked closely with all levels of business, from single proprietors to enterprise and Fortune 500 multinationals. You can find Encompass at EncompassAV.com. Reach out today for a free estimate. Ever wonder about the story behind the story? Who are the people you watch delivering the news, filming the scenes, and putting pen to paper to tell the story you read in your morning paper? Tune in to Media Essential Workers on Facebook and YouTube to find out. With constant changes in the Chicago media landscape, one reliable source keeps track of the people bringing you the stories. Media Essential Workers, the premier live stream telling the story of the storytellers. Sunday nights at 7. Like, subscribe, and follow Media Essential Workers to find out about special shows during the week. Hosted by Raza Siddiqui, Media Essential Workers gets the story of the storytellers. Against the grain, Raza Siddiqui, Tio Hardiman. We have a guest that promised to be very controversial. You've been kind of keeping it, uh, keep, keeping it. I a didn't promise. I promised to be blunt. <laughs> promise to be blunt. You're on the national yeah. news almost uh, every other week with something going on between uh, the city, yourself. Uh, what's going on? I want to get into a little about um, the uniqueness of being a fraternal order of police um, union leader as opposed to other union leaders. W what has been your relationship like in general with the other labor community? Well, I mean, I can tell you the trade unions I, I've had a pretty good relationship with. Um, we've had discussions about uh, expanding opportunity and diversity within even their professions. Um, I, I, but I'm going to speak on their behalf on that end of it. I, I know there's other unions out there who quite like Dr. Dr. Wilson. Dr. Wilson. Good friend of mine. already champion on. I just keep looking at Marsh on the screen. It throws me off. So, okay. um, you know. I get there's other unions who are calling for my resignation, which I find rather ironic because as Dr. Wilson touched on, you know, we're talking, I heard, you know, President Trump's name come up and one of the biggest complaints when he won his election was it wasn't fair. And then when he lost the Joe by President Biden, it was now he's trying to overturn an election. Well, what the hell are they trying to do with my election? These aren't even lodge members, and they're calling for my resignation. Even if they're members of another union or president of another union, who the hell are they to overturn a duly elected president of another union? I mean, it's pretty ignorant. And not it's not, it doesn't even stop at that. You can go to city council to put forth a resolution that 36 or 38 aldermen are basically signing off on, calling for my resignation or my dismissal as the president of this union is unheard of, unconscionable, and shame on them. Where are they with accountability within their own chamber? How many aldermen have gone to prison for corruption? And they just look the other way. And the simple fact is they should know if they're lawmakers that theoretically they can't take me out of office 
Does that create more cohesion within uh, the members that you represent to see that there's all these external forces that are coming out and telling them what their will should be on these matters? Do people take offense to that? Absolutely. And I, I can tell you, cohesion was pretty evident early on when we took office. Um, the The membership was crying for a voice for a long time. And I know because I was part of that cry for a long time where I never felt the union represented me at the level I felt it should. I was, and you want to talk about accountability. Like this, this is just all piggybacking mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Not only, again, and I know people like to make this even a race thing because it involved Eddie Johnson and Jesse Jackson and even Father Flager. And, you know, you could realistically make the simple leap that two African-American males and a priest that represents, well, used to, um, represent an African-American uh, church. But I also got a complaint on Jody Weiss when he was the superintendent of this department for basically being found in contempt of court in federal court two times as the superintendent of police, and they did nothing. Everybody ignored my complaint all the way up the chain, including first deputy Weisinger at the time against a white superintendent. So this isn't about black and white for me. I know people like to make that easy leap, but this is about accountability. And the accountability up the chain of command in this department has always been non-existent and it still is in many ways shapes and forms because commander Ponacor is still in charge of the 17th district down the street after ordering an a report deleted that would embarrass superintendent johnson at the time there's no other way to slice wow. it that's deep so let's bring caller number one on then we get to caller number three after that uh, we got one let's bring caller number three on that's roosevelt from chicago roosevelt you're on the air yeah good afternoon gentlemen uh, John, I have a couple of, couple of questions for you. Far away. I understand. I understand you supported Trump from the get-go when he when he ran for his re-election. This is a man that had said, "When you arrest, when you arrest them, don't go easy on them. When you arrest them, don't hold their head. You know, rough them up a little bit." First of all, do you agree with that? And then my second question is this. How can you support a man that said that and you, as the president of the Fraternal Order of Police, is very irresponsible, in my opinion, to support a man that also uh, supported the rioters. And, and, and as a matter of fact, if Move Lives Matter, don't care when it comes down to Trump causing the death of those police officers that were trying to protect the Capitol, Capitol Hill. Okay. So, All right, Brother Roosevelt, thanks for your call. We'll allow John to respond if you if he would like to, and we'll take it from there. Well, I'll just leave it at this. Okay. President Trump is no longer the president, so uh, it's almost a moot point as far as that's concerned. But you talked about the Capitol uh, incident. And even my comments regarding that, my karma, my comments, which unfortunately were not given context, uh, were based on 20 minutes of video watching on the TV at about 4 p.m. Eastern time while it was still going on. The video I had seen at that point was not anywhere near what I had seen going on in this city that I love, grew up in, and I hate to see what it's become and even other cities. So that was kind of the Taylor direction of where my comments were going. Now, if I gave that interview an hour later, my comments would have been different. If I'd have given it two hours later, it would have been different than even it was an hour later. It was an ever-evolving thing. The best thing I could have did, and I've said it from day one, was not pick up the phone at all. But good old Chip Mitchell called me at the right time, and he got the quotes he was looking for. But you know what he did at the end of it? All he did was put a row of tweets out, and he saved the best tweets for last, in my opinion. And that was where I, I caught hell from both directions. I, obviously, I've always caught hell for supporting President Trump in the day from the left, but I was getting it from the right because I called for President Trump to immediately have a press conference and just knock this off and concede the race once and for all and be done with it. And literally, the right wanted to crucify me because I was now turning my back on Trump and their opinion. And it, that wasn't the case whatsoever. It was just enough was enough. The rhetoric had to stop. We needed to move on. That was pretty much where I was at with it. That's where I'm at with it today. Am I discouraged that he even had that rally? Sure. But again, 
people had the First Amendment right to show up to Washington, D.C. that day to express their frustration and their First Amendment rights. They did not have the right to storm the Capitol or hurt anybody, especially police officers, uh, period. Exactly. And I'm never going to defend that. Well, guys, I that, must admit, that information was yeah. not known to me when I gave that statement. Well, I must admit, there's an old saying, I've met with the perceived enemy, and I found out today that the enemy is not all that wrong. <laughs> and I say perceived because a lot of times people have misunderstanding about people until you meet with that person. Something I learned from a gang leader, actually. A gang leader told me, a gang leader told me before he violates one of his members, he does all his research first to make sure that before he, you know, dishes out a violation, he knows what he's doing there. Then he has to have a witness there to bear witness that this guy violated one of the rules of the gangs. I'm not saying that's the best example, but it's important to do your due diligence on people before you cast judgment on a person. So I learned a lot from you today, I must admit, because I'm one of the brothers on the front line out there. I stood up against all the excessive force, police brutality all my career. You know, matter of fact, I just made peace with Superintendent McCarthy two years ago. You know? Better <laughs> so you brother, than me. That's right. That's right. Go ahead, Brother Rosen. Uh, I, 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 yeah, I don't mean to cut you off, but yeah, you, yeah. you were talking about on the front lines, and I can tell you, yeah. it, it kind of furthers from the comments about Dr. Willie Wilson earlier. You know, one of the commitments we gave to those ministers who all left with a different understanding of what Lodge 7 entails, exactly. was we want to do outreach on a different level right now. We're obviously going to go out into the police districts, take care of our members, barbecues, social gatherings, whatever. But we're, we're in the process of trying to get uh, enough funds together to have a giant food wagon, for better lack of explanation, exactly. where we can do community outreach even at the churches and stuff. You know, we had I had five boxes of Christmas toys that... I literally didn't know what to do with. Um, and we were going to give them away to some of the ministers that were in the lodge. And unfortunately, COVID screwed that up. I ended yeah. up just giving them away to a school in the ninth district. And I gave them to the second district community policing, who then distributed to people in the neighborhood there. So oh, this this lodge, I, I, I'm, I'm going to battle this for however long I'm here. So be it. But again, I just keep... Push, reiterating push, yeah. my actions speak louder than my words okay and i think that's uh the spot that we have to end it uh thanks for joining us against the grain to you hardeman john kettenzara kettenzara john kettenzara i'll get it right after the end of the show and raza Siddiqui. that one i don't mess up join us uh <laughs> next time you can watch us on facebook too against the grain to you hardeman raza Siddiqui. uh talk to you next sunday bye now Great. peace yeah.